Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm, what I'm going to share with you today, one thing I ask, and I pray that you don't feel sorry for me, <laughs> because this is truly what God did for my, in my life and what he did for me. And um, I just want to show you what God can do in the most impossible things you would think it's not possible for God to do such things. And so I'll go off with, I don't know if you can hear my accent, but I'm not originally from the United States. Um, I'm actually from Romania. I grew up in Romania for the very first 14 years of my life. Um, at the age of two, my biological mom put me in an orphanage because she could not afford to take care of me. Um, I remember she was extremely poor. She was provided a housing by the government where she only had one bedroom apartment and a little tiny closet area for just her toilet. She didn't even have a bathtub or a shower. And I remember she kept chickens in the house as her meal and just being afraid to death that the chickens were going to eat my toes. I don't know why. But that's the only memory I have about my biological mom at the time. So because she could not afford to take care of me, her best option was to put me in one of the best state orphanages at the time. I did not think it was one of the best state orphanages, but I learned as I grew up. And um, in the orphanage, I lived for 10 years from the age of 2 to the age of 12. And um, I want to give you a glimpse of what it's like for children who live in poverty, um, even countries till this day who still have orphanages, um, and just give you a picture of what my life consisted of prior to me getting to know who Jesus is and my life turning out for the better. So in the orphanage, I love how here in the United States, actually, when we wake up, we get to think about what we want to eat, right? You're like, okay, I got to shower, smell good, and eat whatever I want to eat. In the orphanage, we did not have that option. Um, we actually got up and we did not know what to expect. There were days where our food supply was so low that I remember eating pieces of bread that were hard as a rock. They were colorful in mold, and they even had a little peach fuzz crown on top of it. And I remember looking at it and I told myself, man, what am I gonna eat out of this? So I remember picking the bread and I like hit it against the table and it sounded like a rock. And I just nibbled whatever I thought was best out of it. Now. There were days where food supply was better than usual, and um, I know America loves butter, but <laughs> there was a thing that they gave us for breakfast. It was always tea with bread and butter or lard. I don't know what it was. It was some grease spread, and, uh, and they'll give it to us. It was very tiring, and I remember one morning they just told us we had to eat it all. I don't know why. Maybe it was for them to keep it on the record that they fed us to sign a piece of paper. I don't know what it was. And so by the time I finished eating that slice of bread with thick coating of grease spread on it, I was so sick to my stomach, so sick. Till this day, I cannot do waffles, bagels, pancakes, potatoes, anything with butter on top of it because it just reminds me of the gross experience I had back then. Now, I can eat a whole pack of Ritz crackers. I know it's packed in butter, but as long as I don't see it, I'm fine. It's just a visual thing. Now, speaking of us, when we get up, we take baths and stuff like that. Well, we did not have that luxury. Um, it was actually a competition in the orphanage. Um, when it was bad time, I remember they would yell out loud, bad time, and everybody would just drop everything they would do and just race to the bathroom. Now, I did not mention this, but in the orphanage, it was not just 20 or 50 children. It was hundreds of children, aging 2 to 18. Yes, we were separated by boys and girls, but it was still a crowded orphanage. And when they called us for bath time, all of us would drop what we would do and just race to the bathroom in hopes that we would be the very first ones in line to get the clean water. Imagine Black Friday here in the United States, like it used to be back in the days. <laughs> 
um, we're, we're literally are racing to the stores to get what we want for our kids or for our family. And you hear tragic stories where people get hurt. And that was like us in the orphanage. We were getting hurt just so we can survive and being maybe hoping to be the very first one in line to get the bathtub. And so, unfortunately, a lot of the times I did not make it. Kids will trade out food for their time to be the first one in line. Or kids will give up their toys, whatever it was the case, just so they can be the first ones. But I remember that the bathtub water, when we would take baths, it was not changed frequently. It was quite after 10 of us. And one of the most embarrassing things in the entire time I lived in the orphanage was the fact that we all like just stood naked in a single file line. And there was different age groups, and some were developed, some were young, and we just looked at each other in disgust. And it was so embarrassing, so embarrassing, and we could not wait to like just get out of it. And if we did not take baths, we took something called showers, where the workers just fill up the bathtub with water, they will scoop it up with hot water, um, you can control the temperature. And they'll just pour the bucket of water on top of our heads, give us a bar soap, we wash ourselves and pass it down ahead of us or behind us. And it was just so embarrassing to me. I couldn't stand it. So because of that, till this day, I just can't stand taking baths. I just feel like I'm washing myself in dirt all over again. I promise you, I do shower. <laughs> um, speaking of hygienic items, uh, we wore the same pair of clothes for a week, same underwear, same pairs of socks, whatever we had on us stayed on us for an entire week. Um, and so, because the holidays are coming around, uh, I don't know who's doing their Christmas shopping yet, but I haven't done it yet. <laughs> um, I remember holidays would come around and um, it was not the same as it is here. Of course, children have dreams, you want to get something. But one thing I remember very well is that anytime people from different countries will come to our orphanage and they'll try to give us gifts and help us feel loved, the very next day, the gifts were always taken away. It was always taken away because the workers personally could not afford to buy the kind of gifts we would receive. So they wanted to take them away from us to give to their own children. So our joy was right there for the moment, but it was always, it just felt like it was always ripped away from us and you could not enjoy the moment. As long as I lived in the orphanage, I can tell you there was a lot of hate, a lot of jealousy, a lot of anger, frustration, desperation, crying. Um, it was just a dark place to live in. There was not happiness at all. And so the only way we could actually entertain ourselves to be happy was by watching each other fight, like actual fist fight, you know, and just to get our adrenaline pumping. But that was the only way. And so when I lived in the orphanage, I know I wanted two things in my life. I wanted to be loved, and I wanted to have my very own set of hair clips. I don't know why, but I wanted hair clips. We went to public schools. I probably saw them on a little girl's head, and I just really wanted to take them out of her hair. And so. As I, I lived in the orphanage, I longed for those things and it was hard to be given until one year a nonprofit organization came to our orphanage and at the same time a missionary group from the United States happened to come to our orphanage as well. And for some reason, I don't know how in the world we heard about Americans coming to our orphanage, but we idolized Americans. We thought Americans are the bomb. We thought they are the coolest, sweetest people, genuine, giving people, and we were ready to grab everything they had that they came in the orphanage with. And so, because the absence of being loved was so raw and so needing at the time, when we heard people from different countries would come to our orphanage, we literally would drop everything we would do and race at the gates of the orphanage. And imagine slow motion, all the kids at one time running to the gates of the orphanage, 
And all of us are tripping each other on purpose so the other ones can fall behind and you're ahead of the game. I remember doing that because I was determined to, to meet a person to hold on to. And so when this group of Americans came to our orphanage and we waited for the bus to stop and people to get off of it, we each eyeballed an individual and we told each other, who's going to be mine? And I saw this lady named Connie Satterfield and I told myself, she's going to be mine. I was determined to make her mine and mine only, not share her with any other children. And as soon as she entered the gates of the orphanage, I grabbed her hand and I did not let her go. I remember I held on to her for dear life. I was afraid of losing her. And as I held on to her, her and the mission team were able to start communicating and start distributing us gifts like these. And when they were giving us these gifts, they started telling us two important things. They started telling us about people like you who pack these gifts with love and prayer and that you are wanting us to experience love. And I'm thinking at 12 years old, how is that possible? How can you pack a gift for me? I don't know who you are. You don't know who I am. Why would you love me when we haven't even met? It was very hard for me to comprehend that idea. But then they talked about Jesus, how there's a God who loves us that much. You see, in the orphanage, we used to worship God, but very different. We used to get on our knees facing this direction all the time, talking to a picture of Jesus being on the cross, reciting the Lord's Prayer, making cross signs across our body, then kissing the pictures of Jesus on the cross, but never an explanation. Why was that man on the cross? And to hear that for the very first time, we heard it through the salvation bracelet. It was the black, the red, the white, the green, the yellow. And to hear that for the very first time, it, I clicked it. And I was like, oh, so Jesus is on the cross for me because he died for me. How is that possible? And it took me a minute to really comprehend the thought of that, that, how God can love me that much. After 10 years of living in the orphanage and suffering and desperation for love, all of a sudden I'm hearing the news for the very first time. So as they give us this great news, we have the boxes in our hands. And we actually held on to them for dear life. Like, we probably would have punctured holes in them. <laughs> we sat down with them on our laps, and we rocked ourselves back and forth as a way to express our gratitude or to comfort ourselves. And as I had the box in my hand, Connie gave me the one out of the stack, which was not even hers. They start counting to three, and our hearts are ready to explode. Like, it's like having a one liter size Coca-Cola bottle and you put a pack of Mentos in it. That's the best way I can make you, help you understand how happy we were. And so as we open up our boxes, I open my box and at the top of the shoe box, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. A big packet of hair clips. A big packet of hair clips. In the orphanage, every girl has short hair. Every girl will try to run away not to get their hairs cut because we all had lice and it was impossible to maintain it. But to me, even though I had short hair like this, I, that did not stop me. When I saw those hair clips, my heart raced directly to the packet. I opened them up and I tried to put every hair clip in my hair. Every one of them. I think there were like 10 or 15 of them. And Connie's looking at me, Livia, calm down. Just put one to the right, one to the left, and you'll look much better. No, I want all the hair clips. Now, when we got the gifts, it was a hot summer day. So it was good to have the hair clips in and feel the breeze. But I just could not believe my hair clips were right there. Wanting something so simple for so many years, and there it was. And I made sure no one took them away from me. <laughs> then I looked further down in my shoebox, and I remember finding a Dove brand bar soap. When you pack one of those gifts, always put a bar soap in it. But I remember picking it up, and I did this. 
And it smelled so good. It smells so good. It was a white Dove brand bar soap. And I told myself, I don't have to take baths after these many children anymore. I could just go to the sink and wash myself. But I never opened the bar soap. I saved it because I wanted to give it to Connie if I'll ever see her again. So all I did was smell the fragrance of the soap with it. Then I look for it down in my shoebox and I find a best friend's necklace. And it was a heart broken in half that was half neon yellow, half neon pink. And it had a piece of string on it, but I thought it was the coolest, most colorful thing I've seen in a long time. And I really connected with Connie, and I wanted to tell her thank you so much for this gift. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for sticking with me, even though I didn't share it with anybody. But I wanted to just express to her the gratitude, giving her a piece of my gift to her to take back home. So I told Connie, here, you keep half of the necklace. I'll keep the other half. Maybe one day we can put our hearts together. And when I shared the necklace with Connie, I told her I love you in her own language. And from that moment on, God tells Connie, she's going to be her, I'm going to be her daughter, and she's going to be my mom. Now, with those gifts that you pack, you never know what can happen and what can the outcome be of it. But with that gift, I didn't just gain salvation. I didn't just gain friendship, but I also gained eternal life. Because that same year that I received my gift, I also accepted Christ. And it is, I, I remember vividly when I was immediately transferred from the orphanage to a Christian home who could, who could help take care of me. It was extremely cold weather, and I hope you remember your salvation very well. Because when I was saved, I felt like I had a fire burning in me. I was ready to shout from the top of my lungs and tell the entire world I have Jesus. I could not wait to have my very own Bible. I could not wait. And so this is what this whole thing about us giving this season is about us giving not just tangible items, but giving the gospel to others. And so to leave you with this, um, I remember, remember the, the bar soap story? Well, the same year, another missionary team came to our orphanage, not too long before I left the orphanage, and um, from Newnham, Georgia as well. And I connected with a lady who was in her 60s and did my whole spiel again. I grabbed her, did not share her with anybody else. But I told this lady, her name is June Keeble, and I told her, give this bar soap to Connie Satterfield, America. I have no idea how big America is. I'm thinking it's the size of the, Romania. And she's like, okay, but where in America? I'm America. Connie Satterfield, just find her, give her the bar soap. <laughs> she goes back to the United States. She's looking for Connie everywhere, but she can't seem to find her. One day, June Kibble had to have some blood work done, and she walks into Connie's clinic where she was working. And uh, June Kibble sat down. Connie was doing her blood work, and June Kibble started sharing with Connie how she went on a mission trip to Romania, fell in love with this girl named Livia, just tells her the whole story, and Connie's just listening to her and says, I think we're talking about the same girl because I'm adopting her. And funny enough, she only lived 20 minutes away from our house. And she still, my, Connie, my mom, still has the bar soap till this day. <laughs> but I want to I wanna finish this story and show you how great, greater God is even more. Because when I received my shoebox, yes, I received salvation and all that, but he... He saved me even more. He took me out of the country because when adoption came and it was time to leave, um, uh, even if all the papers were signed, even if the passport was complete, even if every penny was paid, if I would have stayed in Romania one more day after all the documentations for adoption was done, I could not have come to the United States because as soon as I left Romania, the adoption shut down and they have not been open ever since for international adoption. So it's just a miracle to see how God continued working and showing himself how much he loves me, 
how much he knew that I needed a family who can love me unconditionally. So I want to I leave you with this. I'm sorry, it's not 20 minutes long. <laughs> In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, I love this because it just reminds me of God's love. And it says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an untowing sacrifice for our sins. So that verse never gets tired to me. I always thank God for his salvation because that is the most precious gift I could have ever given. I, I don't know what happened to my hair clips. I ate all the candy at the time when he was allowed to have candy in the gifts. I lost everything I had in my shoebox. But one thing I can tell you is that I never lost Jesus. He always stuck close to me. And so I can't thank you enough for always packing gifts like this and for contributing to the kingdom of God for children to hear the gospel in the most unheard cities or I don't explain it, in the most impossible areas where you can't reach. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Jason. I wanted y'all to hear that because of the nature of what we've been doing, uh, and I think it, when you hear it from that perspective, it puts a new fire in you, doesn't it? And uh, so, in, and I'm not going to take a lot of time this morning, but in Psalm 68, along with that, um, along with that, I want you to turn there, if you will, in Psalm 68, um, if you, just verses, really one through 6 is where we're going to be. Psalm 68 in verses 1 through 6. Um, it's very possible that David penned this psalm um, when they were bringing, right after they brought the ark back from uh, Obed-Edom from that, from that man's home because the very first verse of Psalm 68 uh, corresponds with Numbers 1035 um, and so if you, if you read this, it says, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let them also that hate him flee before him. And in, in the, I'm going to go on further in how it applies to this morning. But this psalm deals with um, three main things. David speaks through the inspiration of God about the Messiah, one is his, uh, him, the Messiah himself. The second thing is his ascension into heaven, and the third, setting up his kingdom. And so this is a prophetic psalm by David, and as he speaks in the first six verses, he's speaking about the greatness and the awesomeness of our God about Messiah, about Jehovah. And he begins it, of course, with, with prayer and I think it's interesting in the world that, that we're in right now, in the uncertain times, uh, in, in a time when if you look at Revelation in the future, there is a, de a definitive moment in the future where the lost world will be raising their fist towards God, not metaphorically, but literally because they're finally honest and they're on who they hate and who they're attacking which is the creator and the concept of one God. And that day is coming. Right now, it's hidden. Right now, it's covered. It's clothed, clothed whatever you want to call it. And, but in this particular passage, 
before we get to verse 6, David prays and he says, Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. Um, we understand that we should pray for our enemies, but there's also a concept in Scripture biblically where you pray against your enemies, and not your enemies, but the enemies of God, the enemies of His plan. So it's not, yes, we do pray for the lost. Yes, we pray for the souls of the lost. But there is a biblical concept that we pray against those that are actively against God. And that's a true thing throughout the Psalms and throughout the Bible. He said, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. And then he says, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. So that's how he begins it with that prayer. But then he changes and he proceeds into praise, which takes up really the rest of the psalm. And it's all praise. So the very first two verses, he's very clear about the request he had for God. Have you ever felt that way, by the way? Have you ever felt like, God, I just want you to show up right now, and I want you to take care of this situation? Have you ever had something that seemed so far out of your hands? Have you ever felt like the cause of Christ was hidden and you want him to show himself mighty? Have you ever wanted the doubters to see God and his truth? Have you ever had a conversation with a friend that tried to mock God or mock Christianity and you want God to just show it to them unequivocally where they know beyond a shadow of doubt that it's true? That's David's prayer right here. But then he transitions and he praises God through the rest of this psalm. And so the first thing he does is he calls upon all to praise God. But he said, let the righteous be glad. Have you ever found yourself not glad? Have you ever felt like a Christian is like, really? Can this world be any weirder? Can things go any farther? Can the world change anymore? And the truth is, he says, let the righteous be glad. He didn't say, hey, in the right circumstances be glad. That's easy for all of us, isn't it? It's always easy for us to be happy when we're in the proper circumstances. It's really hard to be happy when you find yourself in a situation to where you're wanting or needing and he says, let the righteous be glad, let them rejoice before God, let them exceedingly rejoice. It's not a, it's not a uh, drawn into praise. He said, you need to be rejoicing exceedingly. You described, Livia, that Coca-Cola bottle with the Mentos in it. By the way, any kid that's ever had a Mento in their hand and a Coke bottle in their hand has probably tried that. The Bible says our, your happiness at that moment, our praise to God ought to be like that. And he never gives qualifiers. Your, our circumstances are pointless. As the righteous before God, we should, be, we should be exceedingly in praise. Why? Because of what we've been saved from. Eternity is our home. Perfect, sinless perfection. I just told some kids this week, they're like, well, what about this when we get to heaven? Are we going to feel this way when we get to heaven? What about this in heaven? And I told these sixth graders, I said, you realize that in heaven, you're going to be sinless, so that's not even going to be a question. And they're like, huh. And then this grin came across their face. 
I'm like, you know, we can't even imagine what that's like, right? I can't imagine what it's like to keep my mind in check. I can't imagine what it's like that I don't have to worry about human emotion, that I am going to be so spiritually perfect, and you will be too because of Jesus Christ in heaven, that, that it's going to be, that is something that no matter, in fact, because of our earthly circumstances, that is a reality that should make us exceedingly praised. And so David says to the righteous, he says, be glad, rejoice, exceedingly rejoice. And then what does he say? He says, sing unto God. Sing praises to his name. The Bible talks about us having a new song in our heart. And some of us can't carry a tune in a bucket. And that's okay. God didn't say, hey, sing unto God, but I don't want to hear your voice if, you, if you're terrible. That's what I would say. You could come and say, hey, preacher, I want to sing a song for you, and it's just the worst thing I've ever heard. I don't want to hear it again, but I'm not God. Isn't that awesome that he's more loving than we are? Because he says, sing unto me. Sing praises to me. This is inspired by God. He wants to hear your voice lifted up to him. Why? Because he gave us the ability to sing. Why? Because he put a tune in our heart. Even if you can't sing, you like music. Everybody likes music. And the Bible says, sing unto God. Why? Because that is a natural reaction of praise to our God. And then he gives many different things through the rest of this psalm that we ought to sing and be thankful for. And I'm going to quickly go through them. One, the goodness and greatness of God. Two, the wonderful works God wrought for the people formerly, bringing them through the wilderness. Three, settling them in Canaan. Four, giving them victory over their enemies. Five, delivering them out of the hands of their oppressors. Six, the special presence of God in his church. Yes, in his church because it was a prophetic psalm. Seven, the ascension of Christ. Eight, the salvation of his people by him. Nine, victories which Christ would obtain over his enemies. And the favors, yes, the favors that he would bestow upon the New Testament church. Ten, the enlargement of the church by allowing the gospel to go to the Gentiles. And then eleven, he concludes it with the awesome acknowledgement of the glory and the grace that God has. Those are throughout this entire psalm, you can read that. These are things that God has said. This is why you ought to just lift up your voice in praise. But in these particular verses, right here in the first six verses, he prays that God, he prays that God would appear in his glory. There's always been enemies of God, there's always been those that hate him. There's always been those that align with Satan. There's always those that are wicked. And those are the ones that are the enemies of God and his children and the purposes he has on this planet. And so we understand why in those first two verses, God says through an illustration and inspiration of David, God is sanctioning that prayer in those first two verses. But he says in that prayer, if God will just arise, he doesn't even have to do anything. If he will just arise the enemies will melt away like wax before a fire. That's what David says. And then why? For the comfort and joy of his own people. Those who rejoice in God, those of us that rejoice in him, we have reason to rejoice with that exceeding joy. Because light is sown for the righteous. And then he praises God for his appearance 
his appearances, and he calls on us to praise him and sing to him. As a great God, this is what he says in verse 4, he is singing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Jah, and rejoice before him. That is short for Jehovah. He is the spring of all the motions of the heavenly bodies. He directs and manages them as he rides in the heavens. He's swift, he's strong, he's so above the reach of any opposition he may have. So on the hills of him praying that prayer about the enemies of God, he turns around and praises God for him being so much higher than that. And then he gives some descriptions which brings us to my main point and what we finish with on the hills of Livia's testimony. And he says this, He is a father of the fatherless. He is a judge of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. The same creator that rides in the heavens, the same creator that if he would just show his face, the wicked will melt like wax before fire. That same God, that same creator, that same Jehovah, that same Lord God Almighty is a father of the fatherless. And can I tell you, it's not just talking about in our humanity. There's a lot of people that have human parents maybe in the home, but they are so absent they might as well be fatherless. He's talking about every one of us, as Paul said, when we had no family, he gave us a family. And he wasn't talking about a physical family. He was talking about a spiritual family. When we, were, when we were drifting like a rudderless boat, when we spiritually had no place to call home spiritually, he knew in advance who would accept him. And he provided himself a sacrifice on that cross so that when we accepted him, we became baptized by his blood into the family of God. And those of us that had no family, he became our father. Those of us that had no father, he became our parent. The fatherless, the widows, the solitary, find him a God that is all-sufficient. He is good in his glory. When families are bereaved or they're taken away from the head of their home, God takes care of them, and he himself becomes their head. When the widows and the fatherless children find that in him they have lost in the relation that is removed, and they find in him infinitely more and better. What is a father supposed to do, a good father? To pity them? That means to see their situation and, and, and want to improve it, to be identifying with their pain, to bless them, to teach them, to provide for them, to portion things out for them, to leave them an inheritance. He will preserve them alive in Jeremiah. He will, with them, they shall find mercy in Hosea 14. And that was us. And he says this, He's a father of the fatherless, a judge of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary, the lonely, he puts them in families. He bringeth out those which are bound in chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. 
I have a question that I do it every Friday in my Bible class at school. I have, um, we call it Q&A day, and it's where the, the students just ask questions, and, and I tell them if it's, if it's in the Bible, I'll give you a Bible answer. If it's my opinion, I'll give you my opinion, and I'll tell you that up front. It's so funny how every week somebody, one of these kids out of 100-something kids are going to ask this question. When the rapture takes place, they always want to go to the end times. When the rapture takes place, what about those that aren't saved? And the answer is that if they have rejected Christ, they enter into tribulation. If they've had that opportunity and they've rejected him and they're not saved, they enter into tribulation. You know, it's, it's, it's beautiful for the believer that the, the people that find themselves with a new heavenly father, those of us that were solitary in our sin and now we were in the family of God, that's beautiful. Then he switches in that verse and says that he will set us in families. He will bring us out of bondage, by the way, and he did bring you out of bondage. If you're saved this morning, he brought us out of the bondage of sin. We drop those chains, and we are now wholly accountable to him alone as our heavenly father. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. How sad would it be, how sad would we be, if we were living in an area that had nothing? We had no water. We had no way to sustain ourselves. We had no way to provide for ourselves. And yet, right next door was a property that was pristine with all the farmland you could have, all the animals that you could want, all the water and streams that you would want, and it's ours. It doesn't belong to anybody else, but somebody's willing to give it to us. And yet, we choose to live here because we refuse to believe that that can be accessed, and we don't believe that the, the one over there is going to provide that for us. How sad would it be to be that rebellious and to live in that dry land without a home, without a family, without sustenance? And can I tell you, the, the family, the home, the sustenance that our Heavenly Father provides is not just physical, but it's much, much greater than that. We have a spiritual home. We have a spiritual family. We have a spiritual future where the Bible says he picked us up out of the miry clay and he sat our feet upon a rock. How awesome that we have that opportunity to be in a relationship with our Heavenly Father, our Creator who loved us so much that in his awesomeness, and his ability to be who he is and what he does, he loved us so much that he took on the form of a human and he came to this earth as a 100% man and died on the cross for you and for me. And how thankful we ought to be with exceeding, with exceedingly rejoice, rejoicing. That's where we ought to be. Let's